Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Education must not have an end in view, for it is not an end in itself. Sybil Marshall, An Experiment in Education, 1966. So that leads us on to our interview about the philosophy of education. And I'm speaking to Dr. Jennifer Bleasley about the philosophy of education. Welcome to the program. Now, what was it that inspired your interest in the philosophy of education? So I was doing a a Bachelor of Arts at the Trobe University, and I was majoring in philosophy. And in about the third year of my degree, there was a course um, offered in philosophy for children, which was taught by Ross Phillips, who was the head of School of Philosophy at the time. And I hadn't seen, so I'd done quite a lot of philosophy by then, because I was near the end of my course, and I thought that just sounded interesting. I wasn't really sure what it was about, Um, and not many, I don't think I've ever seen another university in Australia that offered a course in philosophy for children as part of its philosophy program. So I enrolled in that course, and um, it was all about actually teaching philosophy to children in schools and the benefits of doing that. And so I got um, quite interested in that. And quite, you know, uh, particularly in terms of how I started to think about how important schools were for realising different philosophical ideas that people had, that if you had certain ideas about how society should be or what was a, what was a just society or what knowledge was and how it could be acquired, that schools played a really important role in sort of realising those ideas. And so while I was doing that course, um, I also I'd studied a lot of feminist philosophy and so when I was learning about philosophy of children, which is actually a whole sort of movement and that, that started around sort of the late 60s in America with a professor named Matthew Lippmann and also one of his colleagues, Anne Sharp, who developed a whole sort of program and materials about teaching philosophy in schools, but a whole pedagogical approach as well. And the pedagogy they use is called the community of inquiry and it's heavily influenced by classical pragmatist philosophers, especially John Dewey, as well as Charles Peirce and Jane, uh, Jane Adams and some other people. And so I got really interested in that. And because I'd been studying feminist philosophy, I started to realise that there were a lot of similarities between feminist philosophy and philosophy for children. So I decided to write my main assignment for that course on how the ideas in philosophy for children and the approaches that they were using to... or their ideas about knowledge and community and the self and growth and all these things were similar to what a lot of feminist epistemologists or philosophers were saying. And Ross said to me that that essay could have been a good master's thesis. So what I I did then is I actually, it became my honours thesis. And then after I completed my honours thesis, I then developed it even further and that became my PhD thesis. So pretty much ever since then, that's been philosophy of education to be my main focus. So philosophy of education and teaching philosophy in schools as well. So I was lucky that I just did happen to do that course. <laughs> yeah, it was. And you've written on the child's right to inquire and shape their environment. Yep. And so 
that's work I'm still doing at the moment. So I started that. It's after I finished all my PhD research. I was looking for a new topic to look into. And I started to look at children's rights. I came to that through looking at problems in education. So in particular, like people criticise philosophy a lot for not making much progress, that they're still tackling the same problems for thousands of years. But education, I think, is really bad for that as well. So I started to realise education doesn't seem to make a lot of progress in particular areas either. So in particular, I was thinking about things like really teachers sort of go into classrooms and they use whatever types of teaching methods or um, approaches to curriculum and assessment that they like. And including approaches that have been criticised for like thousands of years, going back all the way to Plato, really traditional teacher-centred approaches, but then also a lot of progressive methods are quite widely criticised as well. So like really student-centred learning where the teacher doesn't have a lot of engagement. So even that's widely criticised. And teachers kind of just sort of do whatever they like though. So kids can go into one classroom and the teacher's using like a lecturing method. Then they might go into the classroom and it's all inquiry-based hands-on learning. Even though lots of criticisms have been made about different approaches, there's no sort of overwhelming evidence or like empirical um, evidence that says you should be using one approach and not some other one. And so it kind of just means teachers do whatever they like. And educational policies are like this too. They just sort of promote all sorts of conflicting educational ideas. So there's a lot of sort of relativism about pedagogy and approaches to teaching within the field of education. And so I was thinking, and they try to use different approaches to sort of limit this or control what teachers do. And a lot of them are really problematic, like high stakes testing and like NAPLAN, performance-based pay for teachers, all these sorts of things as a way of kind of controlling how teachers teach. So I started to think, why don't people look at children's rights in this way as as a way of saying, well, certain approaches to teaching seem to violate children's rights, so why do we still tolerate them? And when I started to look at that, I realised not the area of children's rights in general isn't great, like it's quite under-theorised, it's a bit messy, and also that when people talk about children's rights in education, it's mostly just about the child's right to education which is important and it's not a particularly controversial right most people recognize that one but it's in itself it's not very valuable because you think well what sort of education do they have a right to so some types of schooling clearly seem to violate children's rights like ones that involve indoctrination and so you know having a right to that sort of that sort of schooling isn't very important so I was more interested in what types of schooling do children have a right to. And then so the approaches like philosophy for children, which I'd already been in research on, seemed really important here because they foster things um, like the child's right to freedom of expression, um, the child's right to freedom of thought, to the, the child's right to imagine, and these sorts of things, which are rights that are implied by the UN Convention on Children's Rights and by some other theorists who write about children's rights. And so in particular, I'm really interested in the notion of the child's right to inquire, which I thought integrates all these other things, because inquiry involves imagination, and expressing emotion and collaborating with others. So all these other rights could come under this big, this big idea of the right to participate in inquiry. And so I started to outline a more like, detailed theory about what the child's right to inquire is and to defend that, using people like John Dewey and... Uh, also Martha Nussbaum as well, who's written a lot about human rights. And also with a, with a, a realisation about all the criticisms that philosophers make 
of rights, which I'm really aware of, and I'd already written about that myself. So the problem that rights can be really individualistic and encourage people to be quite adversarial, making sort of demands upon each other based on their entitlements and stuff. So it's trying to avoid that notion of rights, and it's actually an idea of rights that really fosters community. And so I'm looking, yeah, so trying to develop that theory still and applying it to then different types of education and saying which types of schooling foster this right well and uh, which types seem to limit the child's right to um, inquire or even totally violate it. And I think some approaches to schooling that are still quite widely used may violate some of these children's rights. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I know I sent my daughter to a Montessori kindergarten and children really had a had a pretty much a, a free reign to do whatever they wanted to do. If they wanted to paint, they could paint for the entire session. They didn't have to wait until a certain time to to eat. There was fruit there and there was a knife and they could go over and cut up their own fruit and, and eat when they felt hungry. And there wasn't all these rules imposed on them. And I, I think they, they learnt very well. And it was a much more orderly classroom. Yeah, well, you have to develop the capacity for decision-making through practising decision-making, which means you can't always just be following instructions or orders given by others. And if you never have that capacity to sort of figure things out for yourself and make a decision, you won't develop uh, thinking skills and, and the ability to make decisions. So... And it's, I think that's, I've got a three-year-old and he goes to uh, he goes to daycare. And I think, you know, how lovely it is there too. They have so much unstructured play and then structured activities as well. But also they don't really want to participate in those. They can do other things. And I think how lovely it is and that how sad it's going to be when he goes to school. And it probably won't be. I like that. You won't have so much choice about what activities he engages in. It, I think a lot, a lot of the education system is is quite sad, and when you, when you think about it, we haven't changed education very much. It's sort of been been the same for well, you know, a couple of hundred years, really, hasn't it? That's right. Yeah, it hasn't changed much at all, and that was the thing. That was the original sort of issue that started it. That I started to look at this was the original reason I started to look at that because I was thinking, you know, it doesn't matter. People will come out and say these approaches to schooling are terrible. You have really strong arguments against them and it doesn't really matter. People just go on using these, these, these approaches anyway. And even if like a policies or curriculums might discourage a particular approach, there's nothing really to sort of stop teachers from just continuing to use them if that's how they prefer to teach. And you don't want to take away teachers' sort of judgment entirely, but you want to use some sort of more compelling reason to encourage them to adopt certain methods and avoid others. And so I thought children's rights could be useful there because people, most people sort of accept the notion of rights in the general public anyway. Some philosophers don't like them. So they have the potential to be more compelling in terms of motivating people. You know, if you can say to somebody, that approach violates a child's right to think for themselves or to express an opinion, that's probably more likely to compel a teacher to think because it's quite strong language to use to say, oh, well, wait on, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or what's wrong with it. So to use morally compelling arguments as opposed to this, what what often happens is, you know, you won't get promoted unless your students are achieving these results or that sort of way of controlling teachers, which they're often resistant to and it doesn't work very well. But if you can appeal to their sense of morality 
and actual concerns about what's best for the child and use really strong language like rights to do that, that might be a more useful way to go about it. And you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Dr Jennifer Leesby about the philosophy of education. What are some of the ethics and challenges for inclusive mathematics teaching? Uh, So I wrote a book chapter about this um, last year, and it was not one of my areas of specialisation exactly, but um, another person who works in maths education approached me about writing a book chapter with them because I have expertise in ethics education and teaching ethics in schools. And so she was... She became a bit concerned about this this issue because she was working with math teachers and a common way to teach mathematics now is to embed mathematical problems in, in real sort of life authentic problems. So students do kind of problem solving. So they're using mathematical knowledge to solve um, contextual problems. And she was a bit concerned about that some teachers would sort of embed mathematical topics and issues into problems that had real ethical dimensions to them, but then they wouldn't be concerned at all about the ethical aspect of it. So, you know, students might be asked to look at, to analyse some data about perhaps, you know, environmental impacts or the impact of people on the environment or something like that. And they'd be asked to look at that sort of data and analyse it, but all the focus would only be on mathematical skills and they would disregard, like, the ethical implications of it. And I think one particular example she gave might have had something to do with um, weapons or warfare, and they were looking at something to do with math, but in relation to that. But again, it was quite an ethically problematic um, example that they were using, but they were not really... The teachers were like, well, we don't care about the ethics, they were only looking at the math. It's just useful as an example for teaching mathematics, which is a bit worrying because the kids might just be assuming that well, these, are, these issues are ethically okay or there's no problem with them because we don't talk about that, so they, they must be all right. We're just looking at the math aspect for it. And um, so she started to think, well, sh- surely they should be exploring the ethical aspect of all these things too. And then around the same time, the New Australian Curriculum came out and they have a curriculum in there called Ethical Understanding Curriculum. And this is one of their general capabilities, which is it's not related to one subject area, it's meant to be integrated into every subject area. So no matter what subject you teach, you're supposed to integrate this ethical understanding capability into it, which means you should be teaching kids ethical, like moral reasoning skills and these sorts of things in all your subjects. So that effectively meant math teachers now are supposed to be teaching ethical inquiry and the capacity to make ethical judgments as a part of their math teaching. So we started to look at how teachers might do that. And so because I knew a bit about ethical development and theories about how people develop the capacity for moral reasoning. I use that research and I do a lot on well, people like Kohlberg, Lawrence Kohlberg and Carol Gilligan who are psychologists and John Dewey again as well to look at how, um, how might people, how might math teachers actually teach these sort of ethical capabilities within their classroom and so we gave a few examples in the um, in the article about how teachers might do that. So, you know, because if you're teaching social studies or something, or English, those teachers are going to be pretty good at doing that anyway because they're just used to teaching ethically contentious topics and talking about 
fostering moral reasoning. But in some subjects, like mathematics would be one of the harder ones. Science isn't bad because there's lots of issues there, like stem cell research and testing on animals and all that sort of stuff. But math would be one of the trickier ones for teaching ethics. So it was a good article to sort of explain, I guess, to math teachers how they might do that and why they, why they should be doing that as well. Now, I've always wondered why some school subjects have higher status than others. I know when I was studying philosophy and, uh, I'd, you know, people would say, what's your major? And I'd say philosophy and they'd either say, oh, that's a really easy subject or yeah. they'd say, gee, that's a really difficult subject. <laughs> yeah. So this is a, so I just, this is a paper I just wrote fairly recently. It's published in the Oxford Review of Education late last year. And it, but it's something I'd always thought about for eight years and years too, about why some... Clearly everybody sort of assumes that some subjects have a higher status than others. People just kind of... Nobody really challenges that, that idea that certain subjects like mathematics and physics are more important than other subjects. And we know the ones that have the lowest status tend to be things like physical education, health and vocational subjects, as well as some of the art subjects, the ones that are really practical and hands-on. But it, it's it's kind of just assumed by people, and not a lot. No one's written too much about uh, why that is, or where it comes from, and if it's justified, and what are some of the problems that result from it. Philosophy is a really interesting one because some people will say exactly what you said. Some people say whatever. It's low status because it's because it's irrelevant to the world, and it's, what job can you get with it? And you'll never make any money if you study philosophy. Um, but other people go, well, it's really intellectually demanding. So. In that way, it can be high status. So in that paper, I actually argue philosophy is, philosophy is actually high status in terms of, as a discipline, it's considered an elite, a fairly elite traditional subject that involves lots of theory and abstract thinking. Although, you know, but in terms of some making money or getting a job, it may not be as high status. But within the ranking of the disciplines or different subjects itself, it's fairly high status. And where it's taught in schools, like in Victoria, it's taught in Year 11 and 12. It's a reasonably high-status subject, and it tends to be dominated. It's often dominated by academic, more academically inclined students and high achievers, and also students from... It's a bit of a mix, but a lot of students from higher socioeconomic backgrounds enrol in it as well. So the only sort of research I could find, really, people talking about this curriculum hierarchy, the main one was Richard Peace, who's a professor at... University of Melbourne, and he's done lots of work. The, the term curriculum hierarchy I got from him, so he, he uses that term, uh, talking about this. And a lot of his research is based on looking at, especially the senior years of secondary school, and what sort of students enrol in which types of subjects in the senior years, which is data that you can easily get from off the internet. And so he looked at, you know, well, and what he found was that Things like students from elite private schools, students from higher socioeconomic backgrounds tended to enrol in all the status, subjects that people typically think of as high status. So physics, chemistry, the more advanced math subjects like math methods, specialist math, some language subjects, and a lot of really traditional humanities like history, revolutions, and these sorts of things. And as you move down the sort of curriculum hierarchy, he noticed that Students, the subjects that tend to have the lower status are often dominated in enrolments by students from the most disadvantaged backgrounds. So, again, health and PE, there's 
while plenty of kids from you know affluent backgrounds do those as well, those subjects are dominated by students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Same as vocational subjects, like all the set subjects, vocational education and training in schools. A lot of contemporary and really practical art subjects, like drama, media studies, and those sorts of things. And so you can kind of see it's traditional. If you look at who enrolls in what, you see a really traditional-looking curriculum hierarchy. And so there were people in like that sort of field in sociology who'd looked a bit at subjects and how they change in status over time. So what I wanted to do was look at look at it from a philosophical point of view and say, is there a, some philosophical reason for it as well? Because I'd noticed too, when Richard Tease talks a lot about this, was that the high-status subjects tended to be the most abstract, the ones that appeared the most removed from everyday um, concrete experience. Even with the sciences, while maths and uh, say why physics and chemistry are quite high status, biology tends to be lower status, not as elite as the other two. And uh, he he gives various explanations of this, like things like biology is more obviously connected to the human body; it's more clearly connected to the concrete world, whereas things like physics are dominated by sort of maths and abstract ideas and theory, even though it's clearly about the physical world, it can present itself as really sort of abstract and removed from the everyday everyday experience in the body. So what it looked like to me was it was following really traditional ideas about what knowledge was, that I could trace all the way back to sort of Plato, and that had been dominant in philosophy, the idea that you get knowledge through the mind, through theory, through reasoning, and that things like the body, the emotions, were an obstacle to acquiring knowledge so and that's what the subjects look like the subjects most associated with the body with physical work with the real world like vocational subjects and really hands-on art subjects and PE were kind of low status anything most associated with mental activity with the mind with theory was was really high status do you think that could be connected with trades that people go into is considered quite low to slow status that's right, and so and even that even that idea, so even that idea, could you trace all the way back to sort of Plato's epistemology, and he had this idea that you know there were three different classes of people in the state, and that the the, the top class, or at least the ones that would govern the state, would be the philosophers, because they were the faculties that they were dominating was reasoning, the capacity to reason and find the truth, and he meant sort of absolute truth, the really abstract idea of knowledge. And as he went down, then the next category down were the soldiers, who their main area was, they were quite good at reasoning too, like like military strategy, but they also had to be really fit and strong. Um, So there was a lot more focus on the body. So they were the next sort of class. And the bottom class was all the trades people, merchants and craftspeople and stuff like that. The people who really worked with their hands and were skilled with that sort of work. Uh, And they were kind of the lowest class in his society. And his idea was that you needed to identify where people fit and they got different types of schooling to sort of train them up to do those different jobs. And that idea came from his idea of knowledge, actually, that knowledge was acquiring these really abstract truths that were not found in the everyday world, and that philosophers had the capacity through their, just through reasoning to transcend that and to grasp these sort of universal truths, whereas other people, like those who work with their hands, are stuck in the real world and they're focused on the material world and on... Um, using their body to adapt to the material world and because of that they were never going to sort of transcend that and grasp the universal truth so they were sort of (laughs) they were kind of lower class citizens but really important 
you needed them. You needed all three groups for a society to function, but it's pretty obvious that the philosophers are at the top of that hierarchy. And so you can sort of see that in... So that sort of idea is reflected in the curriculum hierarchy and it's reflected in a lot of opinions people have today about what work is valuable and what sort of yeah, what sort of subjects are val- more, most valuable to study at school. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Okay. I've been speaking to Dr. Jennifer Bleesby about the philosophy of education. I'm Bridget Evans, and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. Well, that's all we have time for today. So hope you've enjoyed the program. 